I'm not somebody that watches the news very often, but I will admit that I do tune in every now and again because I want to know what's going on in the world. And a current story that is consistently being told across multiple platforms is the crisis at the border between Mexico and the United States. And I'm sure that if you're listening to this, you're probably either well familiarized with it or you've heard a lot of different stories pertaining to it that essentially when migrants get to the border, uh, children are separated from their parents if they're trying to get across the border illegally. Uh, There's detention centers with poor conditions. uh, And there's a lot of graphic pictures now of uh, children who have suffered or uh, parents with their kids. Uh, There was one such image of a father and daughter who were drowned in a river uh, either inside of the United States or out of it, just trying to escape and get to where they were going. And typically the narratives that I see around this are twofold. Uh, You either have the narrative of there is a crisis and we need to help these people as they're getting across the border to the United States, or the other narrative is we need to help these people, but we also need to help them get here legally, which I, you know, I happen to be in the camp of the latter. But all of these lives, these people that are rushing to get in the United States to seek asylum or are refugees, uh, those people are the ones that we see and we, we view their lives as having worth and value because they're just trying to escape their circumstances. Now, as for those that may be sneaking into the country illegally, they're bringing drugs or they're bringing uh, gangs and things of that nature. Like, yeah, we don't want that to happen. We wouldn't want that in our country. But the vetting process is very difficult. But the moment that you hear something like a gang member or a person who is uh, potentially a villain by all you know intents of the word and what it means we tend to recoil a bit and we say, you know what, that person, I don't care for that person. They're not worthy enough to come in to our borders. And honestly, I I will say the same thing. I don't want a person coming in that wants to cause harm to me or to my fellow citizens. I just don't want that. I, I wouldn't want that on anyone. But as this story and this narrative is told over and over and over again and has been for a while now, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not taking major sides on this. Uh, I've already told a little bit of what I believe about this issue. But I also come to other stories about those dying in the streets within America who are legal citizens. And I hear stories of uh, veterans that have been left out on the streets uh, for some PTSD or they're not able to keep a job or they don't have homes and they're, they're, they're homeless. And then there's also the, the running narrative of the abortion, uh, pro-choice versus pro-life. It all begs to ask the question then, What is the value or what is the worth of a human life? And that's the narrative that I'm going to be talking about today here on The Writer's Lens. So this is a bit of a somber, I don't want to say dark episode. Uh, I am going to get a little heavy with this one. So um, as always, I'll say I hope you enjoy this one. But again, talking about an issue that to me is of the utmost importance for this generation or any generation to discuss is what is the value that we place on a human life, any human life, regardless of circumstances, how do we view them in the grander story? This is Josh Chasing Felter for The Writer's Lens. This is episode eight of The Narrative Wars. What is a human life worth? I think it's often been said that you find out what a person's treasure is by where they spend their money. 
and where they spend their energy, where they spend their time, where their where their mind goes. That's where their treasure is and what they see to have worth or value. And many times this comes down to very material things. This comes down to cars, you know, houses, uh, perhaps jewelry. There is a real sense of material belongings uh, that can make us feel better about ourselves. And these are the things that we treasure the most. You know, like I said, a really nice car, for instance. My father has a 77 Corvette that he just cannot part with. I mean, he doesn't really drive it anymore. Uh, his Parkinson's has uh, somewhat limited his ability to, to get behind the wheel. But he will not part with this thing because he desires to have this thing around him. Uh, it's, it's, it's a major ache in our family as far as him keeping this, <laughs> this thing. Uh, but to him, it has the utmost value. To other people, it might not at all. Okay, to other people, it might not whatsoever. But to him, it's the it's not the world, but it's something within this world that he's that he deems to have incredible worth. And I often think that that's kind of how we view other people. You know, we look at other people and we say that person has value, that person has worth. Whereas this other person, to me at least, from my perspective, I could care less. You know, I, I couldn't care less about that person, that individual. And I see this in storytelling, obviously, you know, we see this in stories that we read or whether they're real life uh, autobiographies, whether they're fictional ones, there are certain lives that we place a little more value on. And from a storytelling uh, point of view, it's always the protagonist, the one that you're following throughout the whole thing. They seem to have the most worth in the story because it's, it's their point of view. The author has chosen that this is the person you're going to follow the events with and you're going to follow it with them till the very end. Usually, sometimes the protagonist doesn't make it to the end of their own story, but you know, again, that's that's probably a whole other episode I could go down about you know good endings versus bad endings and just you know twisted endings and surprise endings and all other kinds of things in between. But as far as the worth and the value that we place on a human life, be it fictional or even non-fictional, but uh, the narratives that we that we hear out there are all over the map, right? They're all over the map when it comes to human value, and for one, this this is a little bit uh, depressing for someone such as myself who tends to be a bit of an optimist in these areas to a bit of a fault. But uh, the fact that we, we don't really know how to define that, the fact that human beings at large are not very good at determining whether or not every single person has an inherent value is, uh, it's a little bit disconcerting, you know, honestly. And I want to talk about some of the narratives that are out there as far as what we are led to believe and what we are told to believe as far as what a human life is worth. And, and I shared that, that opening about the, the border crisis because it is a human issue. I mean, I know the president has mentioned it being a humanitarian crisis. It totally is. Uh, again, I don't want to go down the road on this too far as far as a tangent, but when you have people that are seeking asylum, you have people trying to gain access here legally, in the United States, and then you have people trying to get here illegally, it's very clear that there are different means and motivations for people to come to another country. The vetting process ought to be very streamlined in discerning that. Now, I'm an outsider on this, so I don't, I don't know everything there is to know about the border crisis other than what I read, but, uh, but just knowing that these are human beings, these are human lives that are coming to the border uh, one way, shape, or form, should strike a nerve with us. You know, we shouldn't just write it off as a faceless issue. 
like people are just trying to smuggle eggs or they're trying to you know earn the right to bring certain cattle or bring uh, you know some kind of new invention across the border and bring into the United States these are actual human beings people that were born in another country who know a different language but have uh, you know knowledge or the wherewithal to know that there's something maybe better waiting for them in the United States but again I'm I'm talking specifically about people that are not here to, to mess things up in the United States. They're not here to upend the the American ideal. So I want to make that very clear on that. And that's, again, why I shared the the opening that I did, because I wanted to lay down some, some foundation as far as there's a crisis happening at the border in America, but there's also crises happening all across the 50 states with the people that live here as well. So let's get into that then. You know, what is the very first narrative we think of when we talk about what is the value of a human life? What is a human life worth? Well, there's the first narrative, which is that all people are equal, that all people actually have inherent intrinsic value, regardless of upbringing, regardless of gender, regardless of, of uh, maybe their circumstances in their life. Every single person has some sort of redeeming quality and value, and we're all equal because of that. That's the first narrative that's out there. It's, it might not be the most popular one, to be completely honest, because uh, our mass media love to make villains. They love to create villains in their stories. So it's very easy to create a person into a villain instead of looking at them. Uh, I, I wouldn't say a more objectively, but perhaps a much more subjective sense of, well, maybe this person, something happened to them. Something went awry. Maybe they had to make a choice at one point or another in their life that they regret. And now they become this bad person in the eyes of, of our journalists or our, <laughs> or our reporters. Who knows? But that's the first one that you hear is that all people are equal. We all have intrinsic value. We all have intrinsic worth. And uh, and that's the first narrative that we hear. I wish we heard that more often than we do uh, because to me, that's that's the one, again, from a Christian perspective, that's where I would, I would want to hold true. Not the easiest thing to do, though. It's not very easy to do whatsoever. Uh, but number two would be the people who have worth are the ones that we give our money to. And again, uh, this is something I think that you can see pretty easily in the West because, as I mentioned earlier, the things we, we spend our money on are our treasures, are the things that we desire. And so if there are people that we spend our money on, those are the people that, to us, have more worth than others. Now, this could be very you know, easy to sort of detach from the much more somber opener that I had or more morbid opener that I, that I did about the refugee crisis or uh, illegal aliens trying to get in the United States, or people in, in the states that are struggling to find work or they're homeless, by just saying, like, look, I spend a lot of money on my girlfriend. I spend a lot of money on my, my boyfriend or my husband or wife. I spend money on those people because they're, they're valuable to me. So this isn't a narrative that necessarily means uh, we're choosing between life and death. This is more so a narrative of, well, look, if I view somebody as worth it, I'm going to give money towards them because I want to support them or perhaps I'm supporting them uh, you know, for whatever reason because I, I like the cause that they're involved in. I like the movement that they're, that they're a part of. I like them as a, as a political candidate. So the people that have worth to me are the people that I'm willing to spend money on, that I'm willing to give my money to as a token to say, like, this is what I've worked for and now I want you to continue to work with it uh, by giving my money over to you. So that's the second narrative. The third narrative is the people with worth are the ones that we can get something from. So this isn't nearly as altruistic as the second one I mentioned, but this is uh, probably one that we play out more often than not in our own lives. 
uh, in our daily life, and we're not even maybe consciously aware of it, is that we we tend to hobnob, we tend to rub elbows and, and whatnot with people that we know we can get something out of. And there's something we're getting from them that we want to continue. Again, this can be... Uh, you know, a, a little bit more mutual than maybe what I'm, I'm saying is in you have a good friend and you like to hang out with that person. So you give them things and you expect to get things from them as well. Uh, those are the ones that we find worth are the ones we can get something from. But I also would extend this to at large, and this is kind of bleeding into my fourth narrative. So I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but, but this would also be in some sense, uh, maybe celebrities or political figures, or uh, you know, athletes, is that the ones that we can get something from are the ones that we tend to kind of give our time to, right? So the ones that really have worth are the ones that we can get stuff from them all the time. And uh, it could be a celebrity, it could be an athlete, because we spend our money there, again, kind of going back to the earlier narrative. But, but in terms of wanting something from them and, and finding a way to get it from them consistently, this is, this is a person that has worth to us. So this encompasses a person that has worth is that we can get something from them. So number four, as you, as you might have guessed, and now that I've kind of opened up that can of worms, is that only certain groups of people have worth and others don't. So we might see a group of celebrities as having incredible worth because they're, they're famous, they're public figures, they, they're perhaps uh, leaders in entertainment somewhere, or you know certain academics uh, professors and, and doctors, these people have worth because of, uh, you know, their training or their, their expertise. And therefore, anyone who poses as them, it doesn't have as much worth. Uh, but again, you could get even more, I think, divisive in this by saying that uh, certain groups based, based upon ethnicity or religious affiliation or perhaps philosophies, only those kinds of people are the ones that have worth in my eyes, and the other ones just don't. And I put up a wall there and I say, well, because you believe in X, you don't have as much worth to me. And again, in, in a lot of stories, you see this play out. I mean, uh, in fiction specifically, I mean, the, the Road to Mars that I wrote, uh, the villains of this story, which was a group called The Hunt, who were after the shepherd, they were after my main characters, Darian, Jack, and Olivia, they saw, for one, that... Uh, each of them had worth because the shepherd was with them. But on top of that, they were going to try and get something from them. But only this group of people had worth in their eyes. It wasn't anybody else that wasn't associated with the shepherd, so they wanted nothing to do with them. They just wanted the people that were associated with, this, with the shepherd, and they would do anything to get, get near them so they could get what they wanted. So therefore, only that group of people had worth in their eyes. Nobody else did. And, and they would show that, uh, I wouldn't say ruthlessly for the most part in that story, but but there are moments where they kind of regard everyone else as just being like, well, kind of trash or, or an afterthought. So that's the fourth kind of narrative as far as uh, human worth is concerned. So again, real quick before I get to number five, all people are equal under the sun. We all have intrinsic value. We all have some sort of redeeming quality or trait. Number two is people with worth are the ones we give our money to. Uh, where we spend our money is where our treasure is. Number three is the people with worth are the ones we can get something from. So this is a little more selfish, I would say, in nature. And number four is that only certain groups of people have worth and others just don't have the same amount of worth. And, I, and again, I said this could be at the micro or even the macro level where 
we look at the affiliations of people that we're a part of, like the Democrats or we're, or we're Republicans, and we look at the left side of the aisle and we say, you guys don't even know what you're talking about. You're not worth anything. You're not worth my time. Or we're on the left side of the aisle and we're looking at the right and we're, and we're saying the exact same thing. Yeah, you guys are dumb. You're, you're closed-minded. You don't know what you're saying. Uh, we don't have any kind of you know, space for you to even breathe or talk to us. And so you have this competing ideology of who has worth and who doesn't based upon the group that you're in, based upon the group that you're a part of. So those are our first four. Now, the fifth narrative that I want to talk about as far as human worth is concerned is one that, uh, to me, is the one that I think people struggle with the most. Because I think from number one, that all people are equal are something we can kind of come to an agreement on depending upon uh, maybe whatever issue it is. Like we all want to be humanitarians in some regard. Like everyone's out there trying to make a connection with somebody. We're not trying to be a complete isolated man or woman on an island who never talks to other human beings. You may you may find that to be a great idea and go on vacation and do those kinds of things. <laughs> for, for me, who's very much extroverted and I get energy from being around people. Uh we're all looking to make a connection with someone. Okay, we're wired for being social. We're wired for community. Men and women both. We're, we're wired for this. We want to be around people. We have to be. We're very sociable creatures, uh, especially with the high order, high level of language that we operate within. So this all people are equal thing can be something that we could semi-agree on, even if we can't specifically agree on the other three. But for number five, this narrative is the idea that a life is only valuable or it has as much worth as what I see in them now and not what could be down the future. So let me just say that one more time. The life that I'm viewing now is only as valuable as it is now and it is not valuable based upon what it could be later on down the line. So what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, I think of people that have committed crimes I think of folks that have done a wrong or perhaps they messed up early in life. They, com- they, they did something that puts a blemish on them as a potential you know, upstanding citizen. Or they've committed some sort of act that would make other people raise eyebrows and say, okay, you can't be around that person ever. You can't trust them because they did X. You know, or, or they committed Y, whatever that is. And so we sort of peg this individual, or maybe we even peg a group of people, and we say, because of this thing that they're known for, which is the worst part of themselves, that person will never come out of that space. There's no way they'll ever grow. There's no way they'll ever learn from that mistake. We just keep them there, and that's what they're going to be in terms of uh, what value they can bring is only their mistake. That's it. Forget the future. Forget them ever you know, turning the corner and being a better person, making better decisions. No, the person I see in front of me right now, that's as good as it's going to get. That's it. So I think this is a narrative that you see in, a, in some stories where you, you might have a character that's trying to break through some kind of ceiling, like maybe their peers don't view them as someone they can take very seriously. I think a great example of this is the old school Rocky movie, the first one with Sylvester Stallone, where he's this total underdog and nobody thinks this guy has a shot at all. And he ends up working really hard and then he ends up becoming the champ. 
And in those kinds of stories, you have a person who begins out of obscurity. The people around them don't really see them as being a somebody or ever could be a somebody. But the moment that they go through their rite of passage, which is very much similar in any story. I mean, I, I unpack the hero's journey, um, one of my older episodes, talking about the personal transformation that the main character has to go through. They have to go through the crucible, if you will, to become something new in order to vanquish the evil one or or defeat the the bad guy or or uh, you know bring order back to whatever is whatever has been put out of order there has to be some sort of moment where the character goes from being on one plane of existence and they begin to get upgraded to the next plane and they do that through some sort of trial and so in our waking lives, this is a very difficult thing to recognize when it happens in a single moment. In fact, if anything, it's not as robust in, in a book you might read or in a movie you might watch where it's very obvious because it's been presented to you that, hey, this was the person's rite of passage. Like in the Rocky film, when he won the title, when he beat that opponent that he was that he was up against, um, or rather he survived the fight, okay, or rather he, he beat whoever he was up against. You knew as a viewer that this was the moment of truth. Like this is where, you know, Rocky went from being, you know, just the underdog to being a guy that they could take seriously. Like here's the champ, right? Here's the guy that that we count upon to give us not only a good fight but but to win. In real life, that's much harder to to witness. In fact, it, it almost happens over a slow gradient, right? Like, for instance, I think of me now being a father of three and being married and. You know, having a mortgage and a, and a job and things like that. Uh, I remember being 18 or 19 years old and being scared stiff about the idea of any one of those prospects coming to fruition. Like I, I knew I wanted to get married someday and, and have some kids, but the idea then of being ushered into it abruptly scared the living bejesus out of me. Like there's no way I could go through that rite of passage at that very moment. My father did. He was, he was married and a father by 18, 19 years old. Uh, different generation, perhaps. But for me personally, to have to go through that way ahead of schedule for me uh, would have been terrifying for one. But uh, but the rite of passage for me was a lot slower. It was like, you know, I grew up a little bit, went into my 20s, did some soul searching, met the girl that I w- that would become my wife. We got married first and then we had kids. Then we moved into a house. You know, you know, then I got this this job that uh, was going to help support everybody. It was a slow gradient. And then after time, if you look back, you know, even my my older brothers or my parents will look at me and go, you know what? I don't know when it happened, Josh, but but you sort of became an adult, right? Like you, you suddenly found yourself as an adult. We don't know when it was. We don't know if it was after college, if it was when you married uh, your wife, if it was when you had your first baby or your third or the second one, not to leave her out. Like, we don't really know when it was, but at some point we have to recognize that, hey, you're, you know, you've taken some responsibility for yourself and, and for your family. So there you have it. You know, now you, we can say you're a parent, you're an adult, you, you know, you, you've been ushered into this life. And we're not really sure when it was that it happened, but it did. Like I said, in stories and in any book or film, that's going to be a pretty overt moment that's going to be presented to you to say, hey, here's the rite of passage. This person has gone from being 
uh, as far as what they're valued at, it might not have been as much. And now they're being valued at something much greater because of the transformation that they went through, the rite of passage that they've gone through, the trial that they've endured. Uh, now they're worth so much more because of this personal transformation. And so this is something, again, in my waking life is so, so difficult to enact, is to have sort of the mind's eye of the person that I see right now could become a CEO someday, even though right now they're, they're, they barely know how to dress themselves in the morning, right? The potential of a person, of any human being, there's a lot of factors behind that. Obviously, there's a lot of self-will, self-determination. There's environment. There's reaction to circumstances. There's the ability to deal with, uh, deal with failure a certain way, how to handle your successes properly. But the one thing that I try to be better at is to not put people into certain compartments that I meet and say, this person will always be this person to me. Like, I'll never actually see them as a great teacher. I'll never see them as a great parent. I'm never going to see them as perhaps uh, a good a good person because I knew that they did this. And I'll always just remember them for that past mistake or I'll always just remember them as when they were the intern and I can never see them as anything else. I mean, I'm, I still get rocked by the idea that my younger brother is going to be 30 next year. I mean, to me, he's still a 15, 16-year-old teenager who is still calling me up to ask how life is going and what he should do about this girl that he's interested in. Like, you know, I, I to me, it still blows my mind. And yet I have to be able to move past that and say, look, there was a rite of passage. You know, he's been ushered into adulthood. Time obviously moves forward. But to recognize that every life has some kind of value to it, not just in the fact that we're all equal, but that what I'm seeing now could become something much greater later on. And I always want to use this argument specifically in an area that is, is close to my heart. It might not be close to yours. When I, when I think about, uh, you know, uh, sort of my own affections towards the pro-life uh, initiative in America. And again, if you're someone listening to this and you're, and you're pro-choice, uh, you know, this isn't me waving my banner at you as though I'm better than you or something or that I have all the right answers or anything like that. But, but it's something that I do feel strongly convicted about. And I, I would appreciate anyone listening to this that, that that's a respectful position. Uh, and, you know, and again, that is my conviction as well. And, but this conviction of an unborn child that could one day be somebody, could one day be something greater than the circumstances of their conception, that's something that is a narrative that I wish we heard more of, that even though it was unplanned, even though this child uh, was not expected or was the product of, uh, of a one-night stand, what if this child could bring in new, just enormous joy to the mother that has this child or to the father who becomes responsible somehow? Or, you know, we always, you know, to me, again, I... I don't want to rant too much on this, but but I feel like we always imagine the most intense moments of our future, and we almost back ourselves into them as though we want this to happen. I know that this is otherwise known as a self-fulfilling prophecy. I realize that. But, but we often project what we anticipate to be the most intense thing that could happen, and then we either avoid it or we try to make it come to reality, right? We, we try to sort of move towards this because that's the moment that we want to anticipate. That's what we want to predict. We want to move into that. 
into that space. But when it comes to human beings, when it comes to believing in a person that they can come through for you, we have a hard time with this. I think we have a very difficult time with this because we want to believe in our own self-ability, especially when it's something we know we can do well. Handing over the keys, handing over the saw, handing over the pen to another person to run with it, to carry the torch. That's not an easy thing for people to do. I don't think it's an easy thing to do whatsoever. Uh, as a parent, I think it's a, it's a unique position that you have the ability to look at your child and say, well, you know what, I can teach you to do this. Or I can covet it for myself and say, well, you know, I'm the only one that knows how to change those tires. You're just going to have to figure it out on your own. Now, consciously, we, I would hope that we don't just think that way about our kids, like we want them to learn from us. But but again, I just I think there's something to this idea that we we have such a hard time looking at the potential of a person and seeing what them for what they could become later on instead of trying to compartmentalize them and say, well, you're always just going to be that 10-year-old kid to me. You're always just going to be that person that screwed up. You're always going to be that person that reminds me of the cheater in math class who always tried to cheat. I don't care if you don't cheat anymore. You're always a cheater to me. Like your worst demons are the only thing I'm going to remember about you. So why is this so hard to do as a human being? Why is this so difficult to do? Well, because we don't forgive very easily, right? We don't forgive very easily and we love to compare ourselves to other people. We don't forgive easily and we love to compare ourselves to other people. And when we do compare ourselves to others, we either beef ourselves up that we're better than the next person and convince ourselves of this, or we look at another person and we stand in awe of them, or we hate them for being better than us. And that creates all kinds of schisms psychologically. But we don't forgive easily. You know, we don't forgive easily. We always remember what someone did to us, how they made us feel if they wronged us, right? Or if they did something good for us too. I mean, don't get me wrong. But in terms of wronging us, it's like a self-defense, uh, it's like a defense mechanism. We don't want that to happen again to us. So we reinforce it. We reinforce the idea this person can do this to us. And I, again, I want to make this very clear. There's nothing wrong with having that guard up about people, especially if it's the same person. Uh, but in terms of having a bit of intellectual integrity or having some emotional fortitude to say, this may not happen to me again by this person, but I'm, I'm going to vet them out. I'm still at least going to filter what's happening and to be very mature about it. Not easy to do. Okay, not easy to do. But to me, I think that's how we can grow. And I think we can grow in our perspectives by saying that person someday could be somebody. As a parent, it's very easy for me to project that onto my kids and say, well, my kids someday are going to be a somebody. And I'm going to do the, the, the best job I can to help them become a somebody someday. That's something that I want to do. That's a goal of mine as a, as a parent. But what about if I'm looking at a coworker or I'm looking at a stranger or an, or an acquaintance that I, I come into contact with. Or maybe it's, a, it's, it's someone that I knew from long ago and I only remember them for, those, for, for something that they did to me. It's very hard to forgive. It's very hard to forgive. And I think that's why this last narrative is so hard for us to wrap our heads around because we're not very good at it. We're not very good at seeing the potential in someone. We're, we're very much short-sighted. We're, we want to deal with things right in front of our face. Yes, we plan things, but we're also moving moment to moment, and we don't want to be stuck in the future that may never exist. And we don't want to be too optimistic because we know that being too optimistic can hurt us. 
right? We don't want to be too optimistic because it could come back to bite us. So, so yes, uh, it's a bit of a rant for me in this episode to, to go down that path and talk about this, but, but this is something that I feel so, so strong about is the idea of, of what is the value of human life? Like, what is a human life worth? What is any human life worth to us? Is it, some, is it somebody that we spend our money on? Is it, is, it, is it only valuable if we can get something from this person? Do we only view certain sects of people to be of value or of worth, and so we plug our energies into those people? Or do we see everyone as being equal in some way and having something to contribute? And even more so, do we look at someone and say, well, down the road, it could be a lot better than what it is now. Maybe we ought to focus on that instead of what is uh, or what it has been. And again, I, I think a lot of this is probably influenced by, you know, probably my Christian perspective from the from a gospel lens, more so than just a writer's lens. <laughs> uh, even though I, I love a good ending, I love good uh, good stories, but I love good transformations as well. I love seeing a character grow because I want my characters to grow in my stories because that's what make that's what makes a really good story or, or personal transformations, those rites of passage, the trials that I've been talking about throughout this episode. I want the same thing for not only my characters, but for people that I meet. That should be a goal of mine, is that I want those same things for people uh, that I meet, that there's some sort of hidden potential in that person. And to you, listener, who's listening to this, there's some sort of hidden potential for you. What is that? Who are the people around you helping to cultivate it? Who are the people around you that are trying to diminish it? That's another question you have to ask yourself. Who are the people around me that are giving life to my life? And who are the people around me that are only speaking death? And I, and I may not mean literal death, like, like you must die, but, but rather negativity, if you want to use other terms for it. Negativity or who are speaking uh, down upon you. They don't see your better uh, parts of you at all. So they're only willing to look at the things that are either wrong or out of place and will remind you of that consistently. Get away from those people. Okay, get away from those people. Uh, it's very it's very much easier to drag a person down than to pull somebody up. And the only way you can get to be the person that's standing above all that is by working on yourself first. That's another thing that, that uh, is very much something I feel strongly about as well uh, in terms of boosting our own value. <laughs> boosting our own value is working on ourselves personally as opposed to trying to fix everybody else. So so that's my big rant, if you will, for this episode, talking about what is the value of a human life? What is a human life actually worth? And again, there's, there's, there's so many other things that we could talk about on this or we could go down. But those are primarily the narratives that, you know, as I was prepping for this episode, these are primarily the narratives that I see being very prevalent. Uh, again, is, you know, everyone being of, of equal value. Uh, those are the, the ones we have that we give worth to are the ones we spend our money on. The, the ones that we can get something from have worth. The groups of people that we associate with uh, those are the ones that are that have value that we should fight for, as opposed to that other group of people that yeah, we we just don't care about them, right? We just we, we don't we don't care for them. Or lastly, I see a person now, and someday down the line, uh, they could be better than what they are now. Maybe I best focus on that instead.
because that's what every great story ends up being is a is a radical transformation of an individual who becomes something better than what they were at the start. So that's also applicable for my own life. Uh, you know, I want to be more down the line of of being better, not only at my craft, but in terms of how I engage people. You know, as I as I get older, uh, you know, these are these are goals that you know I think every every person ought to have. Every person ought to have. Uh, again, it, it might sound a bit idealistic to be that way, but but that's what this is all about. Okay, this these narrative wars. That's what this is all about. All these competing narratives about what a human life is worth. Where do you fall on that spectrum, listener? Where where do you see yourself in terms of how you value other people? What narrative have you bought into? Have you bought into the narrative that people only have worth if they're right in front of your face? Is it certain groups of people? Is Or do you believe that every person, every single individual, every soul on this planet has intrinsic worth or, or redeemable qualities? I remember reading about that in, a, in Orson Scott Card book, which was part of the Ender's Game series, which I loved, talking about how every person has at least something redeemable about them that you could cling to at one point or another and care about them. And I believe C.S. Lewis has a phenomenal quote on this too, uh, which I don't want to botch, but you can look it up for yourself, where he talks about uh, coming across a maybe pitiful creature or a pitiful person and not realizing that the thing that you see now could be in heaven something magnificent or glorious based upon their their good works on earth or their great faith while they were on earth. Uh, And again, I'm paraphrasing big time, so you can go find that quote for yourself by the great the late great Clive Staples Lewis, or otherwise known as C.S. Lewis. So so anyway, on that note, I will conclude this episode. This is a rather long one for you, so appreciate you sticking through all my rant on this one. But again, this is this is one that I just, I mean, I, I feel like I could go for another hour on this. I won't, uh, you know, just for time constraints and because it's it's late while I'm recording this, so I'm, I'm probably better off going to sleep after this anyway. But uh, But again... Ask yourself that question, you know, what is a human life worth? What is it worth? And you might have a lot of cliche answers to that. Start there and continue forward. And if you're a creative writer, if you're someone telling a good story, what is the value and what is the worth of the, of the individuals in your story? Because they may be fictional, they may be fictional, but what are they worth to you in terms of the characters? And, uh, you know, how are you going to portray that, right? How are you going to portray that in your story to your to your reader? So... So that's it for this one, guys. Thanks for sticking it out with me here uh, on this uh, hefty, hefty episode. But um, but I'll be back again next week, uh, getting back to the regular series on the writer's lens, talking about uh, exposing themes and story. So if you're more interested in that, uh, be sure to check that out. But again, if you're liking the narrative wars like I am right now, this is the juicy stuff. I, I really enjoy this as well. But I will get back to the other the other episodes here after I conclude this one. So thanks again for sticking this one, sticking out with uh, with me on this one. This is Josh J.C. Alfalto for The Writer's Lens. These are the Narrative Wars, and I'll get back with you again next week. See you, listener.